Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We're in Philippians. And Paul has been kind of unpacking the beauty of the gospel for us. And particularly in chapter 1, Paul showed us three things about the gospel that we can kind of hold on to. He showed us that the gospel can be protected, proclaimed, and patterned. That is, the gospel can be protected. That's what Paul says, that they uh, worked with Paul in the partnership together in defense of the gospel, that, that the gospel is something to be protected Further, the gospel is something to be proclaimed, and that's what Paul talked about in the second part of Philippians chapter 1 when he talked about there are those who preach Christ with selfish ambition, but he just rejoices that they preach Christ, that the gospel is something that we should be talking about, proclaiming to one another. And then finally, it's not just to be protected, it's not just to be proclaimed, it's to be patterned. That the gospel is something to be lived out. And so Paul, in the last section of Philippians chapter 1, is actually laying out a a life pattern that's consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And what we have here in chapter 2 is Paul's kind of unpacking that idea of patterning the gospel, of actually living out the gospel. And last week we saw in chapter 2 that he talks about how we should consider others more important than ourselves and how Jesus' life and death has implications for that commandment. This morning we turn to a different commandment here in Philippians chapter 2, that we should do everything without grumbling and complaining. If you're like me, when you first read this passage and you said, do everything without grumbling and complaining, you said, then what am I supposed to talk about, right? Truthfully, grumbling and complaining are cultural norms for us, aren't they? And when we speak about weather, we're always unhappy with it, and the weather is always changing, so something's wrong with us, right? When we speak about politics, we're always complaining. When we're speaking about anything, we're uh, naturally bent toward complaint. I heard the story recently of a a tour guide in Ireland, and he was giving a tour at Blarney Castle, and he had this particularly uh, complaining group of people that he was with. And as they came to the Blarney Stone, uh, sure enough, it was closed down. It was taped off. There was some work being done on it. And a particular woman spoke up, and she, she, she was the uh, chief fault finder for this tour. And she said, I've come all this way, and now I can't even kiss the Blarney Stone. To which the tour guide responded and said, well, there's good news. Legend has it that if you kiss someone else who's kissed the Blarney Stone, it's the same thing. And she crossed her arms and looked at the tour guide and said, and I imagine you've kissed the Blarney Stone. And he said, no, no, I have not kissed the Blarney Stone, but I have sat on it. See, I've noticed this. Our life, our joy in life tends to be made by our perspective. Our joy in life tends to be made by our perspective. If we come at life with the perspective that we deserve certain things, an easy life, a comfortable life, we will never be satisfied. 
We tend to always think that we deserve better than what we've been given. However, if we approach our life from the standpoint of a gracious God who has lovingly given us things that we do not deserve, everything is joy. See, here's our main idea this morning. Finding a joyful life in a wicked world requires faith in a God who works in our working. Let me read that again. Finding a joyful life in a wicked world requires faith in a God who works in our working. So here's the idea this morning is that Paul's going to put two ideas in front of us this morning. In verses 13 or 12 and 13, he's going to place in front of us this idea that, that God is helping us. He's, he's saving us and that he's working in our work. Particularly in verses 12 through 13, he's going to say that he calls the Philippians to trust God, uh, God's work amidst their efforts. And then in verses 14 through 18, he's going to call them to something that seems disconnected from that first thing, but is actually very much rooted in it. He calls the Philippians to a joyful self-giving like he has done. So we have the joy here this morning of opening up these scriptures and and learning from the Spirit. Uh, In verses 12 through 13, Paul calls the Philippians to trust God's work amidst their effort. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we've seen Paul be chummy with these Philippians, hasn't he? He has this strong bond of relationship with this Philippian church. And here he calls them to be, uh, to be obedient, not just when he's around, but when he's not around. If you're like me, you're a parent and, and you get concerned about the things your children do or say when you're not around them. My wife tells this story, and this is one of the reasons I love my wife, is she was a young girl, and her, her older brother was tickling her. Uh, parents were not home, and just screaming, endless tickling, right? And it's just screaming, and the parents of the next-door neighbors called the police and showed up at her house, right? We're afraid of the things our kids will do when we're not around. This is what Paul is thinking about. He's like... You obeyed in my presence, but now as I'm gone, will you also obey? Will you also continue in the things that we've taught you? He's looking, as it were, for a better babysitter. And notice the the babysitter that he kind of finds in, in, in verse 12. He says, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, what he's calling us to do is actually work out or do this salvation in such a way that it becomes evident and fruitful. And we know, just as Luke read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, that our salvation is by grace through faith. And this wording seems a little bit contrary to us because we're saying we're going to work out our salvation But what Paul is actually calling us to is that we would perform the actions in keeping with the faith that we claim to believe. As an illustration, we might consider a deer that works its way through the woods. That that deer can't help but leave markings and a trail or a scent or some type of of broken tree branch or a hoof print or something to show that it was present, that it was there. In the same way, a Christian will leave behind works that are evidence of their faith. That if you actually assent to something mentally, it should change the way you actually live and speak and love one another. 
See, a Christian leaves its works behind, showing that genuine faith actually exists. And what Paul calls us to is to work out this salvation, how? With fear and trembling in verse 12. Remember, Paul just gave us a lofty view of Jesus Christ in our last section in verses 9 through 11. He said that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He shows us a high and exalted view of Jesus Christ. See, our works prove that we are in right standing with this lofty, high, exalted Jesus. Therefore, we approach uh, life in God with fear and trembling. We seek to live out righteousness so that, that He has given us so that we might no longer be on the wrong side of God's wrath. See, a salvation without appropriate works runs risks of being Fool's gold. Familiar with the concept of fool's gold, right? Looks like gold. It it feels like gold. You you see it and you might be deceived by it. This morning we, we might put on immediate acts that aren't actually representative of true and genuine faith in us. See, that faith would initially hold promise of a discovery of great spiritual wealth and riches, but eventually will be exposed as a waste of time and effort. Verse 13, Paul reminds us that this salvation that we're working out is God's salvation. We're reminded the Old Testament all the time is telling us that salvation belongs to the Lord, that it's not for us to accomplish. It's something that God has accomplished in us, and we are given the privilege and joy of working out. Look at what he says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice what Paul does here. In verse 12, uh, he's talked largely about their obedience in relation to Paul. You, you, were, you were obedient when I was present, now be obedient while I'm absent. And now he's firmly placed this category of salvation and working out this salvation as the Philippians' relationship to God, as our relationship to God. And this worked-out salvation is God's good pleasure. Verse 13 says it, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, our practice of righteousness honors the God who has saved us. Our practice of righteousness brings pleasure to God Himself. And when we act out in disobedience, it is displeasing and dishonoring to our God who has saved us. might step back for a second and consider exactly what Paul's teaching us because these verses here have so much to say for us to us this morning. See, our changed life happens through a faith-filled effort. You and I, if we're in Christ this morning, our changed life happens through a faith-filled effort. Our life change, practical sanctification, however you want to describe it, whatever nerdy theology term you want to put to it, is what we might call synergistic. Synergistic is that word that business people use. It's meant to describe a collaboration. And I want to differentiate how we might uh, describe this differently this morning. See, the, this language describes two parties that have come together to work with an equal share of the labor. But when I use the term here, I, I intend it differently. 
while we must work for God to work in us, we're not describing a, a 50-50 share of workload. We are describing a collaboration where both parties are essential, but only one is worthy of honor. Just consider this for a second. Maybe you've thought about this before. If I fail to walk in righteousness, I am to receive dishonor for my failure. Let's consider the way God speaks. He says in 2 Peter, we just read this, that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God's not the one who's faulted out on his end of the deal. We're the ones who receive dishonor when we disobey. However, if I succeed and live out my righteousness, I can't take any credit. Paul says it this way. He says in Galatians chapter 2, right? We have it on a throw pillow somewhere. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. If I'm doing anything right, it's because Christ is acting it out through my co-resurrection with him, through the work and power of the Spirit that's working in me. I can take no credit for my righteousness, but I deserve all of the blame for my unrighteousness. I remember being in college and sitting there thinking about my life, saying to myself, when is, am I finally going to change? When am I finally going to just uh, have this, this moment where the Holy Spirit just kind of takes over and, and I don't have to do anything? The eyes roll into the back of my head and the Holy Spirit just takes the driver's wheel as it were. You ever wait, sit around waiting for that to happen and say, well, God, when are you going to strip me of this sinfulness? When are you going to take this thing away from me that I'm so tempted toward, that I'm so given to? When are you going to strip that from me? We recognize that change comes through the consistent application of faith-filled effort. Rarely do sins just disappear overnight. We might have a few testimonies here and there of someone who comes to faith in Christ and gives up lying or gives up swearing or gives up alcohol or, or gives up whatever it were. But usually what happens is that we continually apply ourselves through faith-filled effort to see our lives changed. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We train ourselves, as Paul would say, train ourselves for the purpose of godliness, we study, we pray, we fellowship, we fast, we memorize, all so that we can abstain, so that we can refine, so that we can speak and love like Jesus did and does. See, life change comes through faith-filled effort. Paul has a specific directive in mind for these Philippian believers. And in verses 14 through 18, he presses further into the specifics of exactly what he wants us to see. Uh, and I'm going to invite your attention there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God with, uh, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, 
See, Paul calls these Philippians to a joyful self-giving like his own. See, he starts with this command in verses 14 through 16. And, and the gist of that command is this, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Notice how totalizing Paul's statement is there. Everything. There's not a word that should flow from our lips that, that is marked by a complaining spirit or a grumbling spirit. A.W. Pink says it this way, when we complain about the weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. I don't imagine Arthur had a lot of friends. When you speak that bluntly, you tend to have a very small friend circle, right? It's true. Paul says the purpose of this command is that they may be innocent children. Look at what he says in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. They're blameless and innocent. They stand in contrast to this twisted generation that they live in the midst of. We might stop and say, how does grumbling or not grumbling and complaining make us look like children of God? Remember, God had other children in the nation of Israel, didn't he? And in the book of Numbers, there's this common theme that rises up where the people of God who have been saved by God's mighty expression of power and his mighty deeds in the Exodus now start to grumble and complain against the God who saved them. It starts in Numbers chapter 11, that throughout the Exodus, Israel has been grumbling and complaining, and then it reaches Numbers chapter 11, and and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, Numbers 11 says. They had uh, recognized that they're wandering in the wilderness, and they start to complain against God. Israelites complain after having been delivered from slavery to the Egyptians, and now they're grumbling. Fast forward to chapter 14, after the, the bad report from the 12 spies that returned from the land of promise. And these Israelites speak out. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Wouldn't it have been better for us just to have died? Wouldn't it have been better for us to be in Egypt under slavery than to be in this place, trusting God? We fast forward again to chapter 16, where uh, the sons of Korah and their rebellion against Moses and Aaron are swallowed up in the earth, and the congregation uh, of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord, as if Aaron and Moses made the ground just disappear. See, the history of the sons of God, we have a history of grumbling and complaining against Him. And the pattern is always this. When we grumble, it raises the ire of God. God's anger burns against these Israelites, and He brings a sense of justice to the situation. See, when we complain, we have lost touch with the goodness of God in Christ. Complaining and grumbling is to say that God is, in fact, not good, that he is withholding what is best from me, that we, in essence, could do it better. We grumble and complain because we've lost the gospel. We've lost the sense of grace and mercy that God has brought to us in Christ. I haven't been a good example of this. I 
in reading this text this week have been confronted with my own sense of, of just sarcastic grumbling that I default to time and time again. I have an expectation of the worst when God has only given me the best. I have often been content to highlight the negative happenings in my life, but ignore the divine providence of God who works all things to good, as he promises in Romans 8. And here, I show a a disconnect, a separation between the theology I claim to believe and the actual patterns of my life. Maybe you're here with me and you hear this commandment to do everything without grumbling and complaining. You also sense the loving hand of God on your heart, on your mind. The good news is that God is gracious to expose it. And he's kind to invite us to repentance and restoration. Maybe this morning we might set ourselves to a new pattern of trusting and delighting in the goodness of God in Christ. So the command was there. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul shows us the purpose of this in verses 16 through 18, uh, that Paul's sacrificial life is not in vain. Look at what he says at the end of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. How do, how do we get here? Paul has this statement of saying, you live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. You live as children of God. You're not even allowed to grumble about it. And he gets to this, to this point as he concludes this passage that he calls us to joy. How is it that Paul can speak about joy from a prison cell? How can he speak about joy when he doesn't know if he's going to live or die? See, Paul anticipates that his life of self-sacrifice will be effective in the lives of these Philippian believers. He anticipates that the Philippians themselves will finish strong. That's what he says in verse 15. He says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And he anticipates that he will be completely spent in verse 17. If I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He has this anticipation that he will be completely spent, given even to the purpose or the end of his death for the purpose of the gospel in these Philippian believers. And that's joy. This image of the... uh, Drink offering takes us all the way back into the Old Testament, such that when uh, an Israelite who was going to give an offering oftentimes would would come and they would bring like a quart of wine, and as they offered the goat or as they offered the uh, the sacrifice that was there, the the offering would be poured out upon the sacrifice itself. Paul uses this imagery to draw attention to a few items that the sacrifice of his life was first to be Godward. That Paul's pouring out of his life was for one audience only. 
that it was a fragrant offering, a, a lovely aroma to the nostrils of our God. But the second thing is that it was going to be poured out in its entirety, that you didn't bring a drink offering where you only poured out a quarter or a half or, or three quarters. You, you dumped the whole court out upon the offering, as it were. That Paul's life would be completely spent. The drink offering was poured out in its entirety, and every ounce of Paul's life would be given to this end. There was no withholding in Paul. There was no apportioning of some aspects to God and some aspects to himself. Paul understood that just as Christ had given himself entirely, that Paul would give himself entirely. So grumbling and complaining were off the menu, right? If your expectation is to just die and give and give and give for the purpose of the gospel, there's no room for complaining. I love how Paul concludes our section here this morning. See, Paul's purpose is joy. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul rejoices because he sees the purpose of God He rejoices because he sees the purpose of his life enfolded into the larger purpose of God. His life is not given to its own plans and devices. It's not given, it's given to God's larger purpose in human history. And so Paul can say things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Both are good. I don't know which one I would choose. Life or death, I'm good with either. So we step back from this passage and we say, what's Paul getting at here? Well, remember what we said at the beginning, that, that this is about the life that patterns the gospel. That if we have a gospel kind of shape to our life, that we have an impetus for self-giving, where we would lay aside our desires and our wants, that we would pour ourselves out like a drink offering. And if we're pouring ourselves out like this drink offering, there's no spot for grumbling or complaining. There's only the working out of the salvation that God's called us to. In fact, I want to highlight three different things that show us how God showcases His handiwork. So I want to say this, that God showcases His handiwork by character expressed in difficulty. Know what Paul's telling us. First thing he says is that our God works in us amidst our working. That's what he said. Works out, work out your salvation for it's God who works in you. God uses our, our personal discipline as we pursue means of grace and abstain from sin as His Spirit makes those things effective. You might have had the experience at some point where uh, you'll be helping somebody move or moving heavy items around your house and a young child will come and want to help you move something that they obviously have no place lifting. Now, some of you might look at me and say, you have no place lifting heavy things. But the child will come and they'll want to help you. And sure enough, you'll carry most of the weight and then you'll invite them to help too. You're lifting a couch and they're holding onto one leg and kind of walking with you, right? And they think they're doing it. Isn't this what life in the Spirit is like? We would come along and we would say, let me help you. But the Spirit's doing the heavy lifting. Our resurrection with Christ is doing the heavy lifting. We're just along for the ride. You know what becomes a problem? Is when you invite someone to come and help you, and they won't. 
becomes problematic when God invites you to take up his word, to pray, to consider, to memorize, to fellowship with other believers, and we stop and we won't. Isn't that problematic? In order for God to work in us, we have to let him work in us as we work. We have to take up disciplines. We have to do the hard work of study and prayer and memorization and do all of those things that that allow the Spirit to just change and mold and shape. That's what we need to do. So first, our God works in us amidst our working. Second, our God works in us for His good pleasure. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God works in us for His purpose and His desire As our lives are changed, the Father is both honored and glorified. And when we uh, stubbornly bear down in sinful patterns, our God is dishonored and dissatisfied. Third, our God works in us for joy amidst crookedness and perversity. Our God works in us for the sake of joy amidst a crooked and perverse generation. We are to be children of God amidst that crooked and perverse generation. We are joyful recipients of grace amidst a world burning in their sin. So what Paul calls us to here, it's a very practical reality necessary in this little book, isn't it? It's a means by which we would understand how we put on this pattern of the gospel, this shaped life that that is in keeping with the claims that we have about Christ. But as we stop and consider Jesus, he's not absent from this passage. See, Jesus equips us to joyful self-giving. We can lose easy, very quickly that we just finished talking about Jesus in verses 1 through 11. And these verses here aren't disconnected from what Paul has just finished talking to us about, that that Jesus himself uh, gave himself fully, and Paul is giving himself, emptying himself, and now we also can empty ourselves in line with Christ, in line with our predecessors like Paul, in line with those other saints that have gone before us. We ourselves can empty ourselves, and it starts with a Jesus who gave himself. Jesus suffered without complaint. In all the world's history, no person has ever had such discrepancy between what they deserved and what they received as Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus was not one who offered complaint or even objection. I love what Isaiah 53, 7 says. He says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears and silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was a silent sufferer. And when he stood before the kangaroo courts of his Jewish authorities in his life, he stood silently. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, a self-important sinner, Jesus didn't defend himself. When he was taken before the sinful Herod and mocked, Jesus sat without word, without complaint, underneath the rule and authority of sinful men. 
the only man who had every right to complain, to give voice to the inequities of his treatment, chose silence. Even now, though, Jesus speaks. And he speaks as the advocate of those who have faith in him. This is what 1 John chapter 2 says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father. So Jesus looks at your sin and he chooses not to grumble and not to complain, even though he had every right to do so. Rather, he chooses to speak a better word of righteousness before the throne of God. That struck me this morning. Jesus doesn't complain about you. He doesn't grumble about your, your clay-footedness, your, your whatever it might be. Instead, He goes before the Father's throne and He speaks His own life on your behalf. And so in this way, Jesus equips us to suffer with joy. Because eternity is ours in Christ, no setback is permanent. Nothing's worth complaining about. It's just a temporary light affliction, like Paul says. Because righteousness has been fully granted in Christ to us, no hardship lasts forever. Because Jesus stands before the Father and only speaks His goodness, you and I are lifted out of the cares and concerns of this world. We are set free from grumbling and complaining because Jesus sacrificially died to give us eternity. You realize that? We walk around like, like we have a coat on that just keeps us away from the, the entanglements of this world. So who are we to grumble, to complain. Who is there? Complaining is the evidence of a rebellious heart. It's time for us, like A.W. Pink, to start calling it what it is. Our constant preoccupation with what is wrong and what's broken exposes our sinful hearts. It says that, that God's provision is not enough. It says that God's sanctifying work in us is too difficult. And if we anticipate that our life should be better, that we deserve an easy life, two things are true. We will continually be unhappy. And complaint will be our native tongue. And there will be a vast separation between us and Christ who chose not to grumble, not to complain. How do we have joy in our difficulty? How do we choose joy in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation? I love this quote from Spurgeon. We're quoting all kinds of dead guys here this morning. I just want to highlight that. It's uh, Reformation weekend, right? So we're doing the dead guy thing. Spurgeon said this, as long as I am out of hell, I have no right to grumble. And if I were in hell, I would have no right to complain. See, we have to learn how to flip the script, don't we? We have to learn how to turn the tables of our providence, of our circumstances around. Where we see difficulty and challenge and hardship 
we might turn that around and see a God who is using every ounce of our difficulty for His glory. We have to learn to see the adverse life as given by God, such that we would also desire to be poured out like a drink offering. After all, our spiritual life began with one who poured out His life for us. Further, we have to learn to retrace the goodness of God in the Gospel After all, it's the gospel that takes the edge off of life's biggest difficulties. Isn't that true? I stood at my uncle's funeral two weeks ago. My dad presented the hope of the gospel. Such clarity, such boldness. I was so proud of him. And it's in that moment that I start to think, you know what, The, the death of Jesus means so much for life, even beyond just life and death. It gives meaning to sickness and disease. It gives meaning to all of our suffering. It gives meaning to everything. It colors our world in such a different way that if you have a struggle this morning that you might be tempted to complain about, the the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, our eternity with God should strip away that tendency to complain. Is your complaint disease or sickness? There's eternity in Christ. Is your complaint your own sinfulness? Then there is eternal righteousness from Christ. Is it the shame of your history or of your past? Are you ashamed of yourself? Then there is eternal acceptance from the Father. Is What is the manner of your complaint? What is the manner of your grumbling? Turn to Christ and find renewal in the cross. This is a tough discipline, isn't it? Paul calls us to take every thought captive and make it obedient. I wonder if we might grab all of those complaining thoughts, all of those grumblings, and we might just turn them on their head and find God's grace and mercy in the midst of them. I wonder if we might consider God's graciousness to us in all of those ways. I want to pray. I want to pray that God allows us not just to be given to a spirit of complaining and grumbling, but actually would help us put on a spirit of gratitude, of thankfulness for what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we bring that before your throne now. We thank you that your own son stood before sinful, wicked men and chose not to complain, not to object. Lord, we pray that you would train us in the same mind. That we would put off patterns of grumbling and complaining. And instead, because of our newness in Christ, we become filled with gratitude. Expressing our thanksgiving to you and to others. So Lord, that you would be glorified in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.